Buonasera. My name is Marcello. I am a tour leader with Explore. Ciao. Come, follow me. Behind this 200-year-old gate is the best view of one of Rome's finest fountains. Ah, oh, bellissima. Look at the Renaissance detail, the sunlight in the bronze. Not everyone knows about Turtle Fountain, but you will if you explore. Search exploreworldwide.co.uk and don't just travel. Explore. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm your host, Alex Andreu. Our tolerance is part of what makes Britain Britain, so conform to it or don't come here. I don't think there is a shorter quote than this by Tony Blair in 2006 that better contains the centrifugal forces that work against each other to constitute the always complex, often incongruous, occasionally neurotic British attitude towards immigrants. But is that attitude changing? And is it getting better, as public opinion might indicate, or worse, as political debate suggests? My guest today is a professor of political science at the University of Manchester, whose work has focused in the areas of identity and electoral choice. He's also a senior fellow at UK in a Changing Europe and co-author of, among many titles, the award-winning Brexit Land. Welcome back to The Bunker, Professor Rob Ford. Thanks for having me, Alex. Rob, British attitudes to immigration appear to be consistently improving and among the best globally, according to survey data. Is that an accurate picture? I mean, yes, that is. It's important to remember, though, that the improvement was from a pretty low base. So if we turn the clock back roughly 20 years now to when the A8 accession countries fully joined the EU in 2004. Britain was one of the only countries to grant EU migrants full and unrestricted access to Britain at that point. It's just us, Ireland and Sweden. If you look at British attitudes to immigration at that point, then what followed in terms of a strong negative public reaction would not come as a big surprise. The British at that point stood out for being more sceptical about the economic case for migration, more negative about the cultural impacts of migration, and more concerned about getting the overall levels of migration down. What's happened since has been quite remarkable. We've seen a really large and sustained positive shift in attitudes to the point where we now have a country where the majority of people in polling say the cultural impact of immigration is positive. The majority of people say the economic impact of immigration is positive. And the majority of people say that they want to see immigration levels into practically every occupation asked about either staying the same or increased. In other words, this is a country that says, yes, immigration, good for us, we want more of it. I wonder, can you guess the only profession that the British public doesn't want to see more migrants coming into? 
politicians. Close. <laughs> <laughs> Can you think of any professions that are similarly disliked? <laughs> Lawyers, journalists. Bankers. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, can I ask you in that, there seems to be a gap between how people treat specific immigrants or categories of immigrants or immigrant workers in specific sectors. If you ask sector by sector, compared to immigration as an abstract concept, why why is that? Well, I think there are two reasons. I mean, you're right. Just just to illustrate, for example, if you ask people, do you think immigration overall should be increased or reduced? Um, you get quite a large share of people still saying that they think immigration should be reduced. If you then ask about the main groups of immigrants that we know generate that number, uh, mm. which at the moment is workers in the NHS, students, uh, refugees from Ukraine, uh, Hong Kong migrants, and so on, they say all of these groups are fine and they're happy to keep the levels at the same or even increase them. So on the one hand, they say too much immigration overall. On the other hand, they say all of the ingredients going into making that cake are fine. Um, so what, what <laughs> accounts for this disparity? I think it's two things. Firstly, people are not very good at dealing with abstract concepts in polling. And as a general rule in opinion polling, when people are given a question, they don't easily have an ability to answer. They just substitute an easier one. So people don't have a very clear picture about the overall levels of immigration in the system. So they substitute whatever they have heard about most in the general area of that concept. So if you say, do you think immigration overall should be higher or lower? They tend to think, how is immigration getting discussed in the media at the moment? Then they'll think um, refugees, small boats, yeah. crisis, yeah. illegal immigrants. So the word in the abstract often has a kind of negative coding. So what a lot of people are probably really answering is, do you think there are bits of immigration that you don't like that we could have less of? The second thing is, people really don't have any sense of what a good level is. And so again, they tend to default to, well, is this a thing th that we would like unlimited amounts of? No, therefore, we want a little less of it. That's why they tend to say this. And if you track these questions over the very long run, you see that the answers are basically flat, regardless of what the levels of immigration tend to be. So it's not like people respond to shifts in the actual level of immigration yeah. by changing how they view more or less. They just always say less, just like they always say less crime or less global warming. This is an abstract concept where they think if it's very, very high, it could be disruptive, so I want less of it. But that's quite a revealing parallel, I think, because if you're talking about less crime or less global warming, then you're talking about things which are accepted as not being good in the abstract. And so there must be an element of that in there somewhere, right? That people still think immigration on the whole is not a good thing. Yes. And I, I think that's partly a consequence of, of where we started in terms of the historical roots of this issue in this debate in Britain. So immigration has been a thing that for most of post-war history, the British people have not been very keen on. I mean, if you look at the current polling and think it's negative, or even the polling 20 years ago and think it's negative, take a look at the polling in the 1960s, where 90% plus say they want less immigration in a situation where there was a lot less immigration going on mm -hmm. than there is now. So I think for much of three generations of politics, immigration has been kind of coded as a thing which in the abstract is a bad thing. Yeah. Um, but 
we see that a lot of that evaporate if you make the abstract concept into a concrete group of people. So instead of saying immigration, abstract noun, you say migrants in the NHS, or you say fruit pickers. And then people give very different answers, because then they actually have a picture in their heads of what they're answering about, instead of no picture, or a kind of default negative political coding. Yes, and I think very importantly in all those polls, they have a a picture of a working person Mm. in their head. So how do we solve the demographic equation? Let's say you're advising the next government. We are an aging country, and although the bump is only temporary, we are living longer, so that aspect of it will continue. We have a below-par birth rate, and a general hostility to immigration. What gives of those elements? Well, I think what we have seen since 2016 is that there's a lot more give on the issue of migration scepticism than had previously been assumed. Mm -hmm. Before 2016, for a decade, the, the kind of primary frame through which immigration was debated was huge numbers of people are coming from these poorer countries in Europe and we can't stop it and we don't like it, but we're being told by the EU there's nothing we can do about it. And that did not go well if you were a policymaker who wanted to maintain high levels of migration because clearly everyone was really upset about it. Since then, same kind of levels of migration salience has gone from 40% to 10 to 15%. As I said, the attitudes have got more positive. Same number of people are coming in. So what gives? What gives is that people think, A, we have control over it now because that's been the relentless rhetoric that the government has pursued. And B, that the kinds of people that are coming in are regarded as um, more economically and socially beneficial. I mean, it was always this way, but it's more perceived this way now, that people see migration as something that's keeping the NHS on its feet, that's something that's keeping the universities uh, going and and so on. So to return to your question, what do you do? You've got to frame the issue in terms of this is delivering for our national interest. In a way, paradoxically, given the traditional links between nationalism and xenophobia, in some respects, what you need is a somewhat nationalistic narrative mm, mm. of open migration policies. We are doing this because it's good for our country. Yeah. yeah. As an example of that, I would point to Canada. Canada has some of the most open immigration policies in the world. There's a kind of cross-politics consensus that Canada needs immigrants and Canada benefits from immigrants. And that's the story that everybody tells. Canada's in charge of the immigration system. Canada picks the best. Canada benefits from the best. That kind of narrative, if you can get people to buy it and regard it as credible, which is, of course, a big ask because you need a system that works and that people trust, and there's a lot of work to be done on that. But if you can get that working, then you can actually maintain pretty high immigration levels without necessarily generating a huge public backlash. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. 
So the intuitive perception that liberalizing immigration will always cause a public backlash is not necessarily true, right? I, I saw some research recently by your colleague Alexander Kustov that suggested the actual answer is counterintuitive, that liberalizing immigration, provided the rules are very transparent, can result in a, a public relaxation about immigration, even if the numbers are higher. Well, yes. And we don't really need to talk about that in theoretical terms or even in comparative terms. We, we, we've lived through it. Um, the past few years have seen liberalization of migration rules for very big parts of the British immigration system, or in the case of student migration, the maintenance of very liberal rules that have been you know, used to continue to accelerate recruitment. And where's the backlash? There hasn't been one. I mean, there are parts of the Conservative Party that are very eager to sort of mobilize a backlash, but they're not finding it very easy to do so. And further to the right, if you look at Reform UK, they are absolutely a paper tiger, a busted flush compared to UKIP 10 years mm. ago. I mean, they would love to bang on about immigration, um, but nobody's listening. And, and, and yet, as we head into an election, there it is front and centre as the sort of banner for the Conservative Party. And I saw Sir John Curtis during the by-election night debate, who was saying that actually what you do with the small boat crossings is important to people, but not important enough to switch voters when the economy is burning. So he doesn't understand why the Conservative Party are making this their almost sole issue going into this election. Do they understand something that he and I don't? Or is it just simply a lack of options that they're casting for something, anything? Well, I think I'd make three points on that. The, the, the first is that, that your last point has a lot of weight to it. When you're drowning, you reach for whatever life raft is available. Um, the Conservatives are underwater with the public on basically everything. If they look at the polling and think which issue are we best placed talking about right now? There aren't many good options. And they may think that immigration is, is one of the best ones because it's not necessarily one where they're very well trusted right now, but it's one where longstanding distrust in labour is quite high. So mm. it may be, number one, that it looks like the best amongst the bad set of options. Number two, it is quite a recent development that immigration doesn't move votes. I mean, I started my career as a researcher writing an awful lot and talking an awful lot about how immigration does move votes. That's yeah, why I spent yeah. much of the early 2010s telling everybody, and it was true back then. In the, in the 2010s, in the Miliband opposition, Labour's constant problem was voters said they really hated austerity, but they also really disliked high immigration. And the voters who said, they hated austerity but didn't care about immigration, went Tory to Labour. The voters who said they didn't like austerity but they were concerned about immigration went Tory to UKIP. So Labour wasn't able to capture them because mm, immigration mm. was their priority issue. Now, as Sir John's pointed out, and I agree with him, that doesn't happen. So that's a change. But the current generation of politicians, they all cut their teeth in that 2010s environment. Oh. So they all fear that that could come back. That's point number two. And point number three is, where are the remaining 
voters who really are skeptical about immigration. You know, you've got about 15%, 20% of the overall electorate say it's a top issue for them. Where are they concentrating? In the 2019 conservative electorate. The other big change from 15 years ago is 15 years ago, the issue cut across party politics. Lots of Tory voters saying they were worried about it. Lots of Labour voters saying they're worried about it. Now, very few Labour voters saying it's a priority. They're all focused on cost of living. Uh, they're all focused on uh, inflation. They're all focused on the state of the economy, the state of the NHS and so on. Immigration is not cutting through with them. But it does cut through with a very big chunk, maybe 30 40% of the 2019 Conservative base. Now, if you're a Conservative Prime Minister who thinks there's a pretty good chance you might lose, but you want to avoid the kind of wipeout that will rule out coming back within one term, maybe you've given up on the idea that you're actually going to get another term in office, but you want to put a, a solid floor under your support. And in that situation, focusing on this issue, even though it's a minority issue, may make a lot of sense because it shores up support with that base. It reduces the risk, which is a sort of source of conservative nightmares, of Mr. Nigel Farage returning onto the political stage and splitting off some of those remaining anti-immigration voters. We've had recently the Illegal Migration Bill is now the Illegal Migration Act. It's, it's got royal assent. That completely crystallizes the conflation of asylum seeker with illegal migrant. And even as we speak, there was a decision out about Suela Braverman sort of unlawfully penalizing asylum seekers by denying pregnant women and children under three a a three-pound supplement a week so that they can eat healthier food. I mean, which is... The numbers are so small. It's a fucking rounding error in the Home Office's budget. So there must be some element of them that thinks this sort of performative cruelty does work with some subsection of the electorate. And what I want to ask is this. The general consensus is that the UK will become an international pariah by absenting itself from that system of immigration. Is there a danger that it becomes a paradigm, that there are lots of countries out there that are similarly niggling about the issue of increasing numbers of migration from the Middle East and North Africa, who are thinking maybe we should be doing that? I do think that is a risk. And it's one reason why I think it will be important for any incoming Labour government to dismantle as far as possible some of that apparatus of performative cruelty, of of vice signalling. We don't want to end up in a situation where that's regarded as a kind of acceptable status quo. Incidentally, I don't think that there is a particularly large constituency for that kind of politics. And we've seen a number of instances of quite strong public backlash against Mm. this kind of thing. Um, But When we look at politics outside of the UK, one reason I think this could be an issue in many European countries is the right in many European countries is now splintered typically between a large but slowly declining centre-right party and a smaller radical right party. And the centre-right will therefore very often be tempted to go into government with the radical right. Um, We've seen that in a few countries already. Some countries have had cordon sanitaire, policies about this, but they're eroding. The temptation is very strong. This will get us power. And 
this kind of performative cruelty, the minority of the electorate that it really plays with is the radical right electorate. Mm. The big risk from that kind of approach, which we know from quite a lot of academic public opinion research, and is one of the ways in which I think the Starmer opposition is making a similar mistake to the Blair governments, is there's this kind of belief that amongst politicians of that kind that they're just kind of price takers in the market of public opinion, that they have no influence, yeah. that what they do has no impact on public opinion. But this is not true. Politicians, political elites, play a very important role in setting out and reinforcing behavioural norms, attitudinal norms. If politicians say, this is not an acceptable way to behave in this area, then a lot of voters, particularly voters who are strong supporters of their parties, will say, okay, this is not an acceptable way to behave, therefore we don't behave this way. Look, for example, at Germany in the refugee crisis of 2016. Merkel was able to carry a lot of centre-right CDU voters with her. And what gives me a lot of anxiety is that a certain kind of naivety about public opinion, that, oh, if we just buy off 10% of the voters right on the extreme of this issue, it has no implications for the other 90%. That assumption very often doesn't hold. And the risk is mm. you end up eroding some quite important basic norms about we do not treat people this way. We respect their rights to be treated with dignity, to be treated with fairly, to get a fair claim through the system. All, incidentally, widely shared norms right now, but not necessarily fixed, regardless of what happens in politics. So I do think it's a big risk. One final question, and a, a difficult one to answer, I accept that. Um, the British extol the value of tolerance. As a foreigner, that has always seemed quite odd to me. Um, you know, I tolerate you, does not seem like the friendliest possible, most accepting thing to be boasting about. Um, is there something in that? You know, should we be moving on from the notion that I just about put up with it to making a positive case for certain things, like immigration, for saying it's actually a great thing? Like, you know, for all its faults, the debate in America, I think, on the pro-immigration side tends to be much more strident and front-footed than it is over here. They tend to say, you know, immigrants made this country what it is. It, they're absolutely a vital part of us keeping youthful and keeping vibrant and full of ideas. So what do you think about that? Is, is tolerance something we need to leave behind? Yeah, I think so. These debates are never fixed because by its very nature, immigration is an issue that changes how a society is and how a society sees itself. And I'd like to pick up the example of America, actually, because that really illustrates how things could change in a positive direction. I think most of us who work on immigration tend to think of it in terms of its polarizing nature, the radical right, sort of rather negative ways of thinking about it. If you look at American politics to immigration 100 years ago, it's very much like that. This, this um, national narrative of America as a nation, as a melting pot and a nation strengthened by immigrants from all over the world, that's relatively recent. Mm. Back then, immigration was very strongly suspected. 
there was a very racialized image of American national identity as white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. There were openly racially discriminatory migration laws passed in the 1920s that weren't fully taken off the statute books till the 1960s. But what changed in the sort of intervening 50 years from the 20s through to about the 70s or 80s is you had second, third, fourth generation Americans who always described themselves in hyphenated terms, Irish Americans, Greek Americans, Jewish Americans, um, you know, Italian Americans, Spanish Americans, all of this. And what they were saying is, this is a country that can have both. It can have the best of both. There are unique things to being American and there are unique things to having an Irish heritage or a Spanish heritage or a Jewish heritage or a Russian heritage. And this marvelous country enables us to bring all of that together and express it in new ways. Now, I don't see any reason at all why a country like Britain could not go down a similar path in the decades to come. In fact, it's already happened to a large Mm. extent. You see that with Britain's big ethnic minority communities. They have carved out new understandings of what it means to be British that are actively celebrated by, in fact, very large sections of the public. So I think we should get on the front foot on that and go further on that. We are uh, and will continue to be a society that's enriched by immigration. And I think in the decades to come, that will be something that for more and more British people is just an obvious and central part of what they think being British is. It's fascinating, Rob, that uh, what just occurred to me was that you would say Italian-American, but you would never say Italian-British. You would say British-Italian. <laughs> in, in our vernacular, British would come first, always. Um, Professor Rob Ford, thank you so much for taking me through such a complex issue so, so directly and clearly. My pleasure. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day. So if you like our work, you can and should support our work. You can do so for as little as £3 a month on Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. If you have ever seen an unsuspecting tourist on the wrong side of an escalator and the group of people behind him tutting and rolling their eyes but saying nothing, you will have understood two fundamental things about British society. First, that it needs everyone to know the rules. Second, that it hates ever having to explain them. And so those who innocently disrupt a habitual comfort are seen as much more than newbies. They are seen as trespassers and worse still, agents of change. The one question, however, that most fail to ask is whether the current rules work for them. Because if the answer is no, then agents of change might be just who you need. This is Alex Andreu in the bunker saying over and out. Bunker was written and presented by Alex Andre. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich. The production assistant was Adam Wright. And audio production was by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>